Welcome to a new conversation about software engineering. My guest today is Owen Woods. Owen is the CTO of Endeavor, a global consulting firm. And uh, before working uh, for Endeavor, he spent many years working on software products and in uh, corporate IT for finance. He's a regular speaker at conferences about architectural topics in general, about operations and security. He also published a book on software architecture, which we yeah, discuss a bit later, at least the, the, the operational part. Um, and he's also a contributor for the IEEE software magazine. Actually, that's uh, why I, I know him when I was a contributor there. Um, today, we talk about production environments, production-ready software, and why this knowledge is so important for software developers. Owen, welcome to the show. Good morning. It's very nice to be here. Thank you for the invitation. Thank you for coming. Um, yeah, uh, let's start with a few um, yeah, definitions. What is a production environment? That's a great question because that very much depends where you're standing. For me, a production environment is any environment where if it's not available, people can't get their work done. And if you lose information out of the environment, then it causes uh, somebody a real problem with their work. So that does, of course, mean that not every production environment is what we think of as a classical one, such as a transaction processing system or an e-commerce site or something like that. Um, in uh, in our world of software development, if you have an internal JIRA, that's a production system. Because if it's not there, then the software development um, uh, organization probably can't function properly. Yeah, yeah that's actually that's a, an interesting point. Um, because in in one of my of my projects, that was not that was not clear to to a lot of people. So for them, the production environment was actually only the environment where our software was was running. But for example, if GitLab is down, nobody really saw that as a production problem. Yeah, but obviously, if GitLab is down and we have GitLab pipelines and stuff like that, nobody can do anything. Yeah. I think that's quite a common problem that um, it's not so you, I don't think you find it so much in sort of tech first firms but um, it's quite common I think in historical say you know older retailers or manufacturing firms not to name names but firms that don't view software engineering maybe as core to their business they never think that if the software engineering systems are there actually a really important a bit important part of the business can't function uh, okay so now we know what a production environment is. What is a non-production environment? Uh, well, logically, I suppose I have to invert my previous definition. Don't <laughs> I? <laughs> there are some gray areas. Uh, many people have the idea of pre-production environments. Um, again, um, you, you've, you've got to think about the fact that um, if you're using green-blue deployment, for example, or AB deployment, whatever you call it, or you're using yeah. two environments, um, the productionness that's not really a word, is it? But you know what I mean? Whether something is production sort of varies over time. So it's production today, and maybe next Monday uh, it, it won't be production because the other one will be running production. So um, it, it, there are some gray areas, but it's really it's all the other things where, such as the, our development environments, um, we can 
destroy and recreate those anytime we like. Um, I mean, what, what's the classic way of debugging the long-running integration tests? We reset the environment, we run them again, and magically the problem goes away because it was probably a problem in the that we created in the test data or something like that. So yeah, those, yeah. those I'd say, are non-production environments because we can, they're totally under our control. We own them and we can destroy the information in them if, if it suits us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you, if you just throw away the data on the production environment, people get very mad. Yeah, they um, get really, really unreasonably annoyed. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think one of the when you said the production environment, or in in your definition of a production environment, when you said uh, when it's not available, people cannot work. So I also remember when I worked for large insurance. They had those integration environments and mm -hmm. basically it was really hard to work there without those integration environments. I mean, it kind of, you could, but it was not that easy. And I think that it, it was not a production environment, but uh, I think that that's kind of a gray area. So uh, one of the gray areas you mentioned. I'd agree. We I think we probably... Work view those as tools rather than production environments. But actually, that's definitely, as you say, a gray area because they do affect people's ability to, to get their job done. Hmm. Now, yeah, um, a question we lately uh, had, and it was an interesting discussion. Um, who, who owns actually those environments? So who owns production? Uh, well, I'm, I'm quite clear on that. And it was pointed out to me now quite a few years ago, but it was a bit of a shock when somebody actually pointed it out to me. The organization that owns the system owns in, owns production. Um, it doesn't belong to the software development team. The production environment belongs to the business. Now, arguably, everything could, could, could belong to the business in some sense. But if you think of it as in, the environment I work in, we build software for other people. So often we're providing some of the software development environments ourselves, and you know we own those in, to, to a certain degree. I mean, obviously it's always on behalf of the client, and they're always their views and their needs are always what drives us. But we, in some, some sense, own them. The client doesn't want to know if we've if we've recreated it. Production environment, they absolutely own it. And if we want to remove a piece of data from it, if we need access to it, if we want to recreate something, they have to know. Um, it's much more obvious when there's a sort of contractual relationship, even if it's a partnership one. Where there's a contract, it makes it more obvious. But in a big firm, somebody who was very, very experienced production uh, operations manager took me aside years ago and sort of said to me, you've got to remember the reason that they're, <laughs> they're so predictive of this is this is their business. It's their environment, not ours. And actually, I, I mean, I've sort of carried that piece of advice with me ever since. And it's, it really helps to focus the mind. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's true. I mean, in, in the discussion we had back back a few months ago, um, of course, everybody claimed that uh, you know it, it's our environment because I don't know they wanted the responsibility and the budget and whatever. But uh, in the end, it was yeah, it was pretty clear that the the business sponsor that the business sponsor and the, 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 let's say yeah, the, the organization that, um, owns the production environment. And even if it's, if it's the, the operations team or development team, they, they work on behalf of the project sponsor. And the I business. think that's exactly right. Yeah. Yeah. And uh, yeah, so I, I couldn't uh, agree more, but it's yeah still, 
yeah, it, it leads to, to some discussions. Okay. So now, um, we know what a production environment is, who owns it. And now our, uh, our software runs on a production uh, system. Usually if, if everything works fine, then everything is fine and nobody's unhappy, but <laughs> uh, things go wrong on a production uh, environment. And, um, so what, what could go wrong in a production environment so that it's not usable for, for its users? Oh gosh, there's so many things can go wrong as I'm sure you are well aware, but, um, I mean, some of the things that I've seen that kind of go wrong repeatedly is, um, the things that, um, uh, sort of cause people real problems are that, um, when you're in the production environment, um, performance I've noticed is something that, you know, repeatedly is something that surprises people, um, and perhaps inevitably, but there are things to do with the system's performance are often a problem. Um, the system's running in what's probably a, a less controlled environment in the sense that, um, a particularly large organization, very few systems stand alone so that you are connected to a lot of other systems and their behavior has an effect on your system, which of course, up right through the test testing you know, cycle, we normally uh, mock those systems out. We replace them with highly controlled versions that we control. Um, and of course, you're also in many large organizations, you're running on a platform, uh, be it the storage platform, the database, the application platform that somebody else actually owns and controls. So, you know, the environment often causes you um, complications. Um, things go wrong in production, which, as we were saying earlier, um, you can't just start everything from scratch typically to, to, to solve a problem. I mean, things go wrong in production often in new and unpredictable ways people haven't seen before. Um, and the last one is probably my favorite, which is security is nearly always much more complicated in the real world than in the sort of development and test environments where nobody cares nearly so much about it. As soon as you're in the real world, actually, um, one, there are real people who want to attack you, not test scripts. There are real people trying to get their work done that don't quite fit the security model. There are real complications in, for example, the data that you're trying to control access to. Um, there are real unexpected situations go wrong in the business that that mean that they want to bypass the security control temporarily, possibly for a good reason, but you know that that was probably never predicted when the system was put together. So um, I mean that's quite a lot, I guess. But you know the the things that I see again and again are performance in the broad sense is often you know creates surprises. The environment you're running in creates surprises. The kinds of failure you can encounter in production tend to be more numerous than the ones outside. And security is dramatically more difficult in many operational environments mm -hmm. than it is in the development environment. Yeah. yeah, I think that's a, that's very, a very nice, um, yeah, categorization. I think that, uh, um, environment, uh, security performance and yeah, uh, Let's say function, functional correctness is that. Uh, that's yeah, failures of all that. sorts, I suppose. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to give you an example of the failures, years and years ago, I was involved with um, a system at a big bank. Um, system had had a very checkered history, but we'd got it to really a very good place. It, um, you know, the business were once again happy. Uh, it was one of those systems where if people forgot about it, it was working perfectly because it was one of those systems that was critical to lots of things, but nobody ever thought about. Um, suddenly, 
we had a lot of performance problems with the system by its very nature had to do a lot of processing in big batches. That's just the way it was. Um, and over a couple of nights, um, we had this thing where we were getting paged and alarmed, uh, you know, three o'clock in the morning, London time. Our jobs were running too long. Our, um, you know, message queues were starting to overflow. Something was going wrong. Um, when we looked into it, to cut a long story short, actually what had happened was we were sharing massive storage arrays with another system in the bank, which had suddenly had a huge peak in workload in its environment. Nothing to do with our business line, nothing to do with our databases, nothing to do with our data. It's just that all of our data access between something like 1 a.m. in the morning and 3 a.m. in the morning, London time, suddenly dramatically slowed down. And so it looked as if our system had a performance problem. That's the kind of environmental thing that, as we said afterwards, we were never going to predict that that was going to happen. And it's not something we really could have tested for. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, that's, I think that is the, the unpredictability and how do you prepare that? Uh, yeah, that's a, a totally different story, I think. Or um, not totally different story. Sorry. What, what I mean is, it's that's something we can talk about a lot. And I actually, I, I have a question uh, later where we can discuss how we, yeah, sure. let's say how we can prepare for the unpredictable uh, events. Yeah. Yeah. Um, when I looked at your when we, you gave a talk about this, um, mm-hmm. I always felt, uh, yeah, of course, performance and environments and bugs, and that's usually the case. Uh, or th- that's something I can relate to, but I, f- for some reason, I don't know why, um, I never really thought about security. And I was mm-hmm. like, yeah, obviously security is a big thing, right? Uh, especially these days were, um, um, Garmin, for example, was down for two weeks mm-hmm. because we don't know some security issue, probably some uh, ransomware attack. Um, and yeah, I think that now quite interesting that we have all those, uh, ransomware attacks, for example, or lots of security breaches because that moves, uh, security and, um, yeah, the, the effects uh, on on uh, an available system mm-hmm. uh, very much to the to the top of an organization. So I I was talking two years ago uh, with a, with a client and um, and we we just had a question um, with with the with the product management team when it came to uh, availability uh, if we should if we should be able to um, evacuate the the customers from, let's say, Europe to another region, if we have a big problem, let's say, in Europe, whatever that problem is. I mean, Mm. AWS could be down or you could have a a ransomware attack or something like that. Yeah, absolutely. And and, and two years ago, uh, product management was like, yeah, no, I mean, no. It's never going to happen. (laughs) <laughs> it, it's it's never going to happen, and if it happens, you know, especially when AWS is down, you know, the, the 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 half of the internet is down and stuff like that. And now, now, um, like C level people are asking, you know, what are we doing if we have a ransomware attack? Is our system still operating? What happens if 
we have a major data breach. Um, how do we detect that? How do we um, uh, prevent or how can we protect ourselves from that? I think it, uh, yeah, security came, or at least that's my feeling, um, security requirements, uh, especially when it comes to availability of a system, came quite to the top in the last 15 months, I have the, have the feeling. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I've been giving, so my background with security is, uh, is unusual in that I'm not a security engineer, but I've worked in secure systems environment. Um, so I've sort of worked with security and around security people for quite a long time. And I'm, I'm very, very conscious that like other specializations, you often get the security guys and the dev guys. And there's a big, it's a bit like traditionally with ops, you know, there's a yawning gap in between. So I've been trying to give talks mainly to dev people about security for like 15 years. And what's just been amazing is how 10, 12 years ago, I was getting 20 people in a hall that could sit 100, you know, and I said, who here's a security engineer? 10 of them put their hands up. <laughs> you know, it was basically, I was talking to the people who already knew it. And now, if you give a security talk, you the entire room's packed out. And I say, who's a security engineer? And say, say there's 100 people. Who's a security engineer? And there's now five hands go up you know there's that there's much much more interest in security and how to apply it and what's important in the mainstream community and that's just so fantastic to see i mean it, yeah, it's yeah. such a turnaround in in a relatively short time yeah yeah true when so i'm also organizing conferences and um, i mean not organizing but i'm a, a program committee or program committee chair and five six years ago when we thought, hey, it would be a good idea to have uh, a track on security and privacy, it was really hard to get uh, speakers from that area mm -hmm. to speak at, let's say, regular software development uh, conferences. Um, and also to get uh, people in the room. So it was, yes. nobody was there. And I, I remember maybe it was three years ago. Uh, we had a track on rugged. So, you know, that mm -hmm. was kind of a hip uh, security thing a That's couple right. of years ago. And basically every room, room was totally packed. Everyone was interested in how, you know, how to do secure coding. How can I, whatever. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's interesting to see that it's, uh, yeah, it, um, that the, the, the interest is really rising a lot on security. Yeah, my big fear is that this is what the industry does, though. And there's that what the thing I'm afraid of is that there's going to be a wave of interest in security now. And then in two years' time, everyone will have moved on to something else, whereas people mustn't do that. <laughs> they cannot maybe keep, keep security as their only interest, but they've got to hang on to how important security is, even in a couple of years' time when it's not quite so cool. Because it, it currently seems to, as you say, be very much what people are focused on. Hmm. Yeah, good question. So I, um, I think two years ago, I talked to Sam Newman, and we we had a podcast on um, uh, microservices security. Mm -hmm. And Sam said his, let's say, his hope, and let's say hopeful prediction is that security will become something 
like unit testing. So um, a couple of years ago, or decades ago, maybe better, um, uh, no developer or only a few developer really cared a lot about uh, testing. At least that's what, what he said. And uh, now, 15 years ago, um, a little bit more, the, the test-driven development book came out. And now kind of every developer thinks about testing and uh, writing test cases and stuff like that. And yeah, his hopeful prediction was that it will be kind of the same with uh, security that uh, most of the developers yeah, have this built-in security know-how. That's uh, good see. to hear. I hope he's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, yeah, when, when I look at um, the, the things which can go wrong in production, yeah, I see uh, yeah, functional correctness, security, uh, performance, capacity, maybe availability, reliability. Those are the, the typical um, architectural qualities we have to care about. Mm -hmm. And usually um, we, we rarely have good or even, I mean, it would be nice to have at least some requirements, but rarely we have really good um, requirements for, for those uh, uh, operational concerns. How do I, how do I get good operational requirements? I mean, I, I'm, you, you don't have to answer uh, everything because that probably goes too far. And also I have a, I have to say that I did a recording with a Google, uh, with Alex Premley from Google, where we talked about in, in depth about performance and availability requirements. Um, but in general, the question is wh wh why, why don't we get good operational requirements or often we don't get any operational requirements. Uh, why is that the case? That's a great question. And I have the same observation. They're very difficult to get. Um, I think it's part of um, a broader problem, which speaking from a software architecture perspective, it's difficult to get good quality attribute requirements, non-functionals, as we used to call them. Um, in general, they're quite difficult things for people to think about and to give you anything other than very trivial answers. You know, the system must be usable or it should be available like all the time or um, it should definitely be secure. Um, beyond that, people find it quite hard to think it through. Um, in the operations area, I think it's probably exacerbated slightly um, further by um, the fact that historically, the people who um, operate the system have not had very much to do with building the system. So they don't have very much background uh, or very much experience or education in thinking about requirements. Often the people who viewed themselves as being responsible for some of these qualities, such as performance, scalability, and security, they were actually seen as part of the infrastructure team. They were the infrastructure designer architecture team, but they didn't operate it either. <laughs> so they were sort of thinking about what they might call non-functional requirements. And then you had the development team who were really focused on functions. So I think one, it's just hard non-functional quality attributes are. And two, you've always had this fragmentation in responsibility where it's always someone else's problem, excuse me, someone else's problem, which is why um, it, it's doubly hard. A general approach to specifying um, quality attribute requirements, which I've used for a long time and I think really does work, is to use scenarios. 
so scenario-based um, 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 definition. Um, and you can also use scenarios for exploring whether a system can meet a quality attribute or not. Um, this is work which, I mean, goes back a very long way. Um, I think it's probably the Software Engineering Institute, the SEI, um, which is at Carnegie Mellon University um, in Pittsburgh. They probably have done the most to popularize this approach, and I'm not sure if they came up with it, but they've they've done a lot to make it visible. And the idea being that rather than say, rather than simply saying we have to have you know a scalability and here's a number, actually tell people a story so that they understand the implications of what they're asking for. So you can say that <clears throat> the stimulus on the system is that it's Black Friday and there's this transaction load and the transaction load is increasing by 40% every five minutes, something like that. Um, and then you say, well, in response, what should the system do? And you actually need to kind of go through from a, a, maybe an abstract perspective, but you, you actually say, well, the system will um, you know, accept load up to the following level and rate, rate of increase, after which it will load shed. And when it load shed, here's what the end user will see. And then um, there's normally also a measurement section of the scenario, which is um, here are the critical metrics that we would use to understand um, this scenario in terms of what we need and how, how the system should respond. And the thing that I've found over the years is that if you just write down quality attribute scenarios, uh, sorry, if, if you just write down quality attributes as simple statements, people just sort of gloss over them and go, yes, that sounds okay, because they don't really think what the implication of them is. If you write them down as scenarios or stories, it brings them to life, especially for less technical um, users, such as, you know, acquirers, you know, business sponsors, people like that, as to what they're really asking for. And for operations, we can do the same thing. We can use stories um, um, to try and bring to life for the operations group how it's going to be to operate this system. So what, what, will, we, what will we be expecting them to do? Um, under certain conditions, what operational facilities or tools should be there? Um, the other thing which causes problems, I'm sure, you know, um, um, knowing your background, you've, you've seen it many times in large companies, is where the operations team aren't very involved in the whole process of developing the system. So they never get the chance in the stand-up to put their hand up and go, hang on a minute, I don't think we're going to be able to operate that because if we haven't got you know, more monitoring, how would we know that this happened? Um, and you know, then the team go, oh, yeah, that's a really good point. We didn't think of that. Because their voice isn't in the room very early, then um, it can be a very long way down um, down the sort of um, delivery life cycle, way past any point people are thinking about requirements, where you actually get any input from anyone who knows anything about operations. So those are the two things I'd do is use scenarios, so tell people stories if you like, but also um, see if you can persuade people who really know about operations to come and be part of the definition and the building of the system, not just taking it when it's finished. Hmm. Yeah, I also, I, um, I really like the scenario approach. Um, and to, commu to, to communicate the scenarios and help the people understand what, a, what the scenario means. Um, I think a good a good example is availability. If you if you have uh, scenarios for let's say availability and non availability, mm -hmm. um, 
that I, I think th there the reaction is always uh, pretty interesting because usually if you ask someone, uh, I mean, you cannot ask someone uh, what type of availability they want because usually they would say uh, 100%. Yes. <laughs> which, uh, which is, of course, uh, not possible. But if you talk to them and you, you, sh you show that um, a certain amount of availability or non-availability is maybe okay. Yeah. And also say, okay, we have here a scenario where uh, the system is not available, for example, and that's probably still okay. Mm -hmm. And if, if, if that's not okay for you, then of course you have to pay more money to get a higher availability, for example. Yeah. Exactly. Actually bringing money into it can be key because you can show people that it's a non-linear relationship. Um, you don't get 10% more availability for 10% more money. Um, and, a uh, guy I used to know worked for Tandem when there was a Tandem before they became part of Compaq and then HP. And that's how Tandem used to have that conversation with their clients was because Tandem of all people knew <laughs> that getting that last 1% or 10th or 100% got exponentially more expensive. And that's what they did. They said, well, we can give you 100% availability. It'll be $20 million. <laughs> customers would just look at them as if they were mad. And they went, but we can get you 99% availability for $2 million. Um, and they went, oh, that's that, that, that's a lot better. And they, they could have that sort of trade-off discussion with them between um, you know, even theoretical availability and cost. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. I mean, there is a, an interesting Google paper... Uh, um, I think ACMQ and, and there they say they have this uh, internal rule of thumb that each nine more costs factor 10 more. That seems intuitively about right to me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so that, that's their, their kind of a rule of thumb. And I, I also believe, was it Frank Bushman who, who once in a talk said, uh, at Siemens, they they usually try to answer with money. You know, every, everybody can show up and say, um, our telephone switch should handle 40 million parallel calls. And then they would say, okay, you can have that. And it costs you th uh, 3 billion. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then people are shocked. And then, but if you want to have, you know, like an, a normal, what, what you would expect to have, then we, we can give you that for 5 million or something like yeah. that. And, yeah. um, that really helped. Yeah. 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 Money is always, everyone understands that. <laughs> yeah. Yes. And also I think it it reduces, if you have that conversation, it reduces this kind of, uh, friction because if you don't have operational requirements usually people freak out even if everything is okay so for example you have an incident and people really uh, i i i heard quite often now luckily not anymore but uh, you know our our uh, we want to to be as close as possible to zero incidents or something like that mm -hmm. And for every incident, uh, people freak out. But um, if you if you have a requirement and you have, let's say, three incidents of 20 minutes per quarter or month, then, you know, everyone is still relaxed if you have that incident. If Because, yeah, it, it, it should be fine to be down for, let's say, 
three hours a month. And um, now we consume like one and a half hours with those three incidents. So everything <laughs> is still okay. Yeah? Nobody needs to freak out. So yes, it also helps to, um, to, to be a little bit more yeah, friendly with each other. Yeah, setting realistic expectations. This this is why Google introduced this idea of the error budget, didn't they? Because they have yeah, ops exactly. and dev teams, and this is their shared metric, which is we have an error budget, and you know we we will use it. Yeah, it, yeah, yeah, yeah. I think they did a a very good uh, job with um, helping the community to find good uh, requirements for availability and performance and how to measure them and how to improve. And uh, yeah, I, I think that that's, uh, that was a really, really good idea. Mm. Okay, um, let's assume we have good requirements or good enough uh, requirements. Um, you, you once described um, a solution framework uh, for dealing with those uh, operational uh, concerns. Could you elaborate on, on that solution framework? Yeah, sure. So what I observed was that there's four broad areas that people seem to expect from their production systems, that they're functionally correct, which is probably outside what we can talk about today. I mean, that's, we were you know talking earlier about the fact that, um, you know, things like unit testing and functional integration testing, that's those kind of things. But then there's stability, there's capacity and security. And um, those are three broad areas we need to think about achieving because there's an expectation, especially today, that systems are stable in the broad sense, that they have the capacity that they will require for a reasonable workload um, and that they are secure, whatever that means in, in the right context. And um, I've, I was trying to, I remember this is when I was working at one of the big banks. I was just trying to help all the teams think about what do we actually, I mean, they sort of accepted the point. I mean, yes, those are all important to us. And if we don't get them right, we'll be you know, cold in the middle of the night. Um, what is it we need to know to achieve this? And I observed there's three things you really need to know. One, you need to know, are there design principles in this area that help you to be um, you know, stable, have capacity, be secure? So how do you go about designing the system? Um, are there specific technology solutions which are useful in achieving these qualities? And then are there particular processes, maybe operational processes, that we should be aware of or that we should be um, assuming or telling operations that we need in order to achieve them? So that was, I mean, certainly it was not a terribly sophisticated framework, but um, that was a little framework I came up with to just really, really help organize knowledge in this area, especially for teams who were not, who didn't have large amounts of operational experience themselves. Yeah, I mean, simple is always uh, good, right? <laughs> it normally helps. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, yeah. I also, um, I, I use your, let's say, your solution framework, and I think it really, yeah, it 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 really helps me to to categorize my work. For example, um, when I want to have an uh, available system, yeah, um, what do I need to to do in order to achieve that. And then I, you know, I, I can look up uh, what you say, design principles. I can look, uh, for example, the work from uh, Michael Nygaard, who describes a lot of design principles, for example, for stability. Yeah. Yes, exactly. Um, yep. And I can think of technologies which are supporting uh, me. And um, 
also, you know, the operational pro or the processes, I think that is uh, quite often forgotten. But um, in that uh, Google ACM paper I mentioned, um, there, they also, they, they, they kind of described the, the same thing uh, you said. So uh, they, they have design principles, they, they mention technologies, and they also say, look, if you, if you want to have uh, 99.999% availability, like some internal Google services really only allow, let's say, 10 minutes downtime a year, for example, um, then you you just cannot uh, have no incident process, or you if you have an incident process, you cannot just say um, people need to respond within thirty minutes because <laughs> if if the requirement is ten minutes, uh, then thirty minutes is obviously not enough. So you need um, also uh, yeah following the sun. Um, uh, operational support, for example, and yeah, I, I think it, uh, it's uh, it's really it's really uh, helpful. Um, in one of your presentations, I believe you you played through one example to um, uh, to to describe those uh, uh, the, the solution framework. Mm -hmm. um, maybe maybe you could uh, we, we could also play through one example now. So do you? For example, let's say stability. Uh, how do I achieve uh, stability? What what technologies, design principles, processes uh, support me? Sure, sure. Yes, we can definitely do stability. Um, yeah. So if we stand back and say, well, um, well, once again, how we structure it. So what do we need to think about in terms of design? What do we need to think about in terms of you know specific technology that would be useful to actually you know help us do this? Um, and then are there processes that you know we should be aware of um uh, or you know that mandating or building in um the, uh, examples of the kind of design principles that help with stability are things like fail fail quickly or fail fast um so that you don't allow errors to build up and propagate in the system and become their own incidents mike and nygaard describes it that way is that um you don't want a failure um to become um, a propagating incident itself um then um you can isolate problems. So when something happens, you want to limit the, I think the, the, the phrase lots of people like to use is the blast radius, as um, you want um, uh, a problem to be isolated in the element or the uh, the part of the system where it occurs and not affect everything else. Um, and then um, a principle would be ensure steady state operation. So it sounds obvious that the system will, if there's nothing going wrong, wrong with it, will just continue running. But actually, um, there's all kinds of things during normal operation could also affect stability, such as you know a single query running out of control in a database, that kind of thing. And so for each of these, you could look at you know, specific things, such as um, timeout is a design pattern, which um, you could apply to um, almost any kind of request within a system. You don't want synchronous requests or even asynchronous requests to, to last forever. You want to time them out. Um, just mentioned asynchronous versus synchronous communication. They're both very valuable patterns in different places, but you'd want to choose those quite intentionally. And obviously for stability versus, for example, performance and latency, for stability, asynchronous integration tends to be better. Um, there are design patterns, which again, go back to Michael Nygaard's book, which is full of, full of good uh, advice on this kind of thing. He talks about bulkheads, which are 
it's quite a conceptual pattern that's separating the system into different pieces from a particular perspective and circuit breakers. That's where we prevent overloading one part of the system from another by um, when errors occur, backing off, you know, analogous to the Ethernet collision protocol. Um, and then you know, around ensuring steady state operation, it's things like making sure that the system has sensible housekeeping. Um, I, uh, I'm, I should probably be embarrassed by the number of systems I've been involved with that have actually run into an operational problem simply because something wasn't housekept correctly, such as a quota or um, uh, disk space wasn't monitored or memory wasn't monitored or something like that. Um, and in fact, wasn't it only a few weeks ago that Google had a major outage, which uh, I'm not sure we have all the details, but something running out of uh, something running out of disk, disk space due to a quota um, was part of it. I'm not sure if that was a housekeeping problem. It, it may not have been, but it just shows that things that sound quite minor can actually have quite big impacts. Um, <laughs> other things like governor, you know, um, p- patterns such as throttling um, uh, or or governors. Um, they mean that there's lots of specific technology solutions, some of which implement those patterns and some of which are useful in building them. I mean, things like um, you can uh, you, you can have um, API um, um, gateways, which can incorporate quite a few of those design patterns, such as circuit breaker and failing files, the asynchronous communication and so on. Um, we can build bulkheads into the system by isolating different parts of the system inside different parts of our cloud infrastructure. Um, for example, um, um, some modern technologies have got things that resource governors built into them. So um, this first emerged in relational databases where you could put limits in that said um, a single query can only consume so much, say, IO uh, or so, so many memory blocks or whatever. And so um, if we if we build the kind of patterns into the design, we can then go and look for specific technologies that um, will help us implement those. Like any um, quality attribute, my advice is always use an existing tested one. Don't try and build it yourself because these things are always harder than they look. But um, um, in some cases, we may have to select or build some of the technology ourselves. Um, circuit breakers, for example, I think it's relatively rare actually outside a couple of API gateways that you get circuit breakers built into things. So you may need to build yourself a little wrapper for a network request library that builds the circuit breaker in, that kind of thing. But again, my advice is test it awfully carefully. You don't want your <laughs> stability mechanism to become the source of a problem itself, which is all too easy to do. Um, and then um, when it comes to processes, um, I- I'm a great believer in um, uh, taking as many of the processes away from the people as possible. But um, it's things like making sure we have transparency in the system, making sure that we automate as much as possible, make sure that things are repeatable, even if we can't automate them, so that people don't have to figure out processes every time, and to make sure we've got processes um, in, in the system, be they ideally automated or if not manual, um, for that steady state operation. What does the system need done all the time just to make sure that it keeps running reliably? The most obvious one being trim, trim logs or you know, rotate and trim logs so that you have enough um, uh, log messages going back a significant time to investigate what's going on. And perhaps you want to take statistics out of the old ones, but you don't let them build up forever. I, I know that's quite a trivial example, but if you think, I'm sure if any listener thinks of any system they've been close to, there are things that you need to do, do to the system routinely just to <clears throat> keep it running in a steady state. And those are often, they're really easy to overlook because they're not very interesting. Um, but they're actually quite important to steady state operation. Hmm. Yeah. 
I, I just, uh, I just uh, remembered my, uh, my self implemented th circuit breaker seven years ago or something like that. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you yeah. tested it really carefully though. <laughs> um, yes. And the, the thing is, um, I, I looked at, uh, at, um, uh, Hystrix back in the days and I, it, it, I thought, ah, yeah, it's basically, uh, it has too many, um, too many, too many options so hard to, to uh, configure correctly. And of course, uh, not invented here. So we have to build it on our own. Um, but the thing is, if you, you test for your one use case and then you, you bring it into, into life. And then all of a sudden you're like, ah, we forgot this and we forgot that. And, uh, yeah. And in the end. It was now just a I waste know of they time. Put that feature in. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So it was, it was quite uh, stupid. Um, yeah, what you, I think one thing, what you said, um, uh, regarding processes that, uh, some just sound trivial, uh, but you, you still have to, to remember them. Uh, so we at, within, we at InnoQ, we use, um, uh, the ARC 42, uh, uh, template to mm -hmm. let's say documents, um, and communicate architectural requirements. And we kind of have, or not, we kind of, we ARC 42 is uh, to some extent, uh, a kind of, yeah, but when I say checklist, it's not correct, but you know, for the, for the simplicity, I think it's good to, to say that. That, for example, you, 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 you look at the things which remember or which remind you what you should think of, you know, don't forget that because it can bring you into trouble, you know, think mm -hmm. about, um, let's say you, you have to think about, uh, logging or you have to think about, um, how do I, uh, uh monitor my system, for example, or mm -hmm. error handling, or you name it. And. Um, what we don't have in ARC 42 and basically, um, uh, I haven't seen that in any of the, of the templates, neither ARC 42, uh, or C4, where do I document the operational stuff? Of course, there is always place for design principles. There is always place for technologies, but obviously, uh, uh supporting processes, it's neither part of those uh, two. There is no great uh, guidance. Um, and in your book, and I, I, I mentioned the book in the beginning, um, you propose the operational viewpoint. And I think that's uh, quite uh, interesting. Uh, may, maybe, maybe you can you say a few words about your operational viewpoint? What, yeah, what it sure. does? And um, I mean, I'd first have to say both C4 and um, um, uh, R42 are great frameworks as well. Um, uh, I mean, if anything, a disadvantage of the one that Nick Rosensky and I came up with is it's a bit more uh, all-encompassing and a, so therefore a bit more complicated, which is why um, people certainly use it. But I think um, one of the reasons C4 has been so successful is it's very straightforward to get started with, and, but that's just fantastic. Um, you know, Simon and I have talked a lot about it over the years. Um, so I, I think he probably deliberately didn't put in 
the operational stuff because he didn't want to um, give people too much to think about just when they were starting off. But what Nick and uh, the, the I same, was, uh, Sorry, uh, just yeah. to interrupt. Uh, uh, also with Arc 42, it, it deliberately doesn't talk about operational processes. It's, you know, the, the goal is to 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 um to come up with everything related to development what needs to be implemented and why mm -hmm. so yeah and that's you know i think that, that that's very fair there's there's plenty to think about just about how you build it um when nick and i were looking at um putting our framework together i mean to be honest this was a long time ago but even back then we were trying to find something that existed and it just didn't seem to which is why we created our own um it was one of the things we realized early on when we were talking through what did architects need to care about? That um, of course there were these um, there were these um, quality attributes, you know, performance and scalability and security and so on. Um, and we started off actually thinking, well, there's a set of of these that are important to operation, aren't there? And both of us had seen quite experienced software developers and architects running into problems um, for them and their organisations because they didn't think about operations early. So we said. What we'll do is we'll we'll find the the quality attributes useful for operations, and then it's sort of to be honest, we flip flop back and forwards a bit as to whether this was a bundle of quality attributes or or um, an actual um, view of a system. But in the end, we decided that it was a view of a system. The reason being, one of the reasons you create a view is because you're trying to create a model, draw a picture, tell a story for a particular group of people, and of course, we realised that. There were a couple of groups of people, such as infrastructure folks and operations folks and compliance and um, maybe audit, those kind of people. They really wanted to talk about how is the system going to be operated and how will you ensure it, it, it um, you know, can be monitored and how will you put software into the environment and so on. Um, and so we realized, actually, we did have a constituency, a group of stakeholders who cared. So therefore, we came up with the operational view. And the kind of thing that it, it um, tends to contain is those kind of concerns, which is, how do you operate the system? Um, how do you monitor the system? How is it controlled? Um, um, from an operational perspective, how does software enter the system? Um, in fact, things like deployment pipelines are probably in the development view, because the operations people don't really care too much about what's in the pipeline. They care about what's coming out of the pipeline, how that's applied to the operational environment. So um, how are operational environments created? Uh, I mean, hopefully these days, we wrote the book quite a long time ago. These days, a lot of the historical problems, such as, you know, we need to go and buy servers and wire them together and raise lots of tickets to get the networking configured. A lot of that's going away very quickly because people are in public cloud or private cloud environments with very high degrees of automation and a lot of software, as, um, sorry, infrastructure as code. But a lot of the concerns about how is this going to be monitored? How is this going to be controlled? Um, um, uh, how do we know what's going on inside production? What kind of... Um, what kind of um, analytics are we going to run on that environment, and what data store? You know, what, what data? Um, where does that data come from? Where is it stored? How does that processing work? All of those things—they're of great interest to the operation or people. I don't want to say the operations team, the people focused on operation. Um, they're of less interest to a lot of other people. So therefore, we came up with a view, which actually. I mean, we published it as part of the book, and then I put out an academic paper on it, um, and it appeared in IEEE software. I've been quite surprised over the years that an awful lot of people have come across it and found it 
at least a useful concept, even if not all the detail. And quite a few people have actually picked up the detail and said, um, yes, it's a few years old now, but the ideas do seem to still be very relevant, Um, especially as people think more and more about how to integrate operational concerns and operational people into the development lifecycle. Mm. Yeah, I will put uh, the paper uh, into the show notes. Um, yeah, a colleague of mine, he once said, ah, you know, um, operations is kind of the forgotten view in software <laughs> yes. architecture. And, and I said, yeah, correct. Maybe we should do something about it. And then I Googled exactly those words and I found your paper in IEEE, <laughs> in <laughs> yes, IEEE software. <laughs> and yeah, I think, um, Yeah, for example, with Arc42, we are also, I mean, Arc42 will remain uh, what it is, but um, maybe, uh, you know, that, that's kind of a, an idea that we have a, um, yeah, a, a supplement, so to speak, something like Ops42, where we, where we have the, the operations um, view and uh, oh, where we probably heavily stole, uh, heavily steal uh, from you. <laughs> so let's see. But uh, yeah, I think the, the, the operational viewpoint you have, uh, yeah, it's, it, it, I think it's a great idea and very useful. That's good to hear. Okay, so it's always good if, if other people steal it. Um, definitely. <laughs> It's a sign then, of success, uh, definitely. Exactly, exactly. Okay, um, yeah, maybe coming to the, to, to the end. Um, when we run systems uh, in production, so now we, we develop the systems and we deploy them and we regularly deploy them and now they are, they are running uh, in production, so you you um you already talked about uh, monitoring um I, i just have let's say a little extended question uh, what is observability uh, of a system so that that's a term which uh, came up uh, lately so nobody mm-hmm. talks about logging and monitoring anymore Every, everyone talks about observability now so is that uh, what is that and is it very different to let's say the traditional terms um that's a great question uh, to be honest i think that term uh, from my recent research into it that term is still very much emerging there are some quite loud voices in that area who are, i think trying to lead the industry to um you know a particular um a particular definition of observability which which they that they feel is very important and that people need to understand better um Of course, I think observability as a term has been used informally for quite a long time. So there is, there's at least the potential for a bit of confusion here. But um, <laughs> I think um, historically there have been three technical bits to the puzzle. I think there's been logging, which we've all known and loved for a long time. There's been monitoring. So, you know, that's your, your, um, your metrics, if you like. And then more recently... Um, there's been the idea of tracing, as in um, you know, comprehensive tracing, which I suppose companies like um, AppDynamics um, had a lot to do with popularizing, uh, where we can trace actual transactions through actual multi-tier systems in, in, in production. And those, those three things give you the building blocks. I think what the observability folks are pointing out is that it's all very well having this data, but actually unless you've got information and then understanding, it doesn't actually get you very far. And I think that's a really good point. So my reading of the, of the observability um, area is that really what the people are talking about is they're saying, you've got to have 
an understanding of how your system works internally, and you've got to link all this data to that understanding. Now, dare I say it, this sounds a bit like having a model of your system, a subject close to my heart, because I think models unlock a, unlock a tremendous amount of insight. But I think this is where observability is trying to go, is they're trying to say, um, of course you need comprehensive logs, of course you need traces, of course you need um, runtime monitoring, but what you need is uh, a system model that all of those three relate to so that you can understand what, I don't know, a particular um, queue length in this part of the system, what that actually means for the health of the system. Mm. So, um, I mean, that sounds like, it sounds like a pretty lofty kind of research goal, although, I mean, there are companies who are very actively trying to work on observability systems right now. Um, And there are a lot of challenges, such as, I mean, I I think, Early on, the observability folks were saying, just collect all the data. You don't want to sample. You know, you just need to have it all, and then we'll, we'll analyze it. You know, this is the world of big data. And I think for big systems, that's quite overwhelming. Um, I think certainly a friend of mine's a product manager in the in the in the APM market, and I mean his views always been that works up to a certain scale, and then it doesn't matter even if you're Google. <laughs> I mean, collecting every event in every system right across your estate probably isn't going to work. So I think there's there's a lot of things still to be worked out, but that I think is where observability is trying to go. And I think people today probably do observability themselves in their heads. They maybe build system-specific tools to help them understand what the things that their metrics and traces and logs are showing them. I think what the observability community are trying to do is to bring it to the next level where we could have some automated tools to do it, which sounds like a you know that would be a fantastic step forwards um, when we get there. Hmm. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, when you when you said uh, collect everything, um, yeah, I also I I dealt with an APM uh, provider, and they they also said, yeah, you know, we are just in the world of big data, and we collect everything, and and I was a bit surprised because even Google in their tracing system, I forgot what the the name is, but um, yeah, they, they they have a they brought out a paper, and in that paper they said that they basically only collect uh, one from a thousand requests. Right. So that's that's the only. Which at their scale value. is still, I'm sure, a huge amount yeah. of data. And uh, but what they what they try to do is. Uh, they want to ignore, let's say, the the good requests and only try to collect the the possibly uh, problematic, uh, but not yeah. requests, but collect traces. all the outliers, so they, and you'll probably learn a lot more than by collecting yeah. mainly the successful ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah, I like the idea to say we have a we have a model, and that it's also it's kind of an architectural concern. You know, what do I want to want to get out of my out of my system? Um, in terms of uh, understanding it, um, yeah. Okay, so so our system is now running in production, and uh, and you said um, we probably need processes, or not probably we we need processes supporting our system. So um, obviously we need processes to get systems uh, in or, or yeah deployment units into a production environment. Um, but I'm also wondering if you could uh, say a, a few words about uh, other necessary uh, processes like um, incident process, uh, security incident processes, maybe fire drills, uh, something like that. Um, 
why are those, what are those and why they are also important for software developers and architects? Sure. Um, also, I, I should immediately say, I've never been a specialist operations person. So, um, in fact, this is not something I'm an expert on. But um, having worked with operations quite a lot, um, I think you've named a lot of the important processes for today. I mean, historically, ops have always picked up lots and lots of manual processes, often because the software wasn't finished, quite honestly. And so they have to pick up things that they shouldn't really have to do. But in terms of the essentials, yes, I mean, <clears throat> there needs to be a way of putting software into production in a very reliable, controlled way highly automated um, way that so we know exactly what's there um, that includes you know emergency temporary fixes just as much as um, um, you know significant functional releases there needs to be a way of um, routinely um, um, understanding what's going on in the operational environment and uh, a process for analyzing that that so that trends can be extracted and that's all part of helping the wider team understand, one, how successful they're being, and two, where they need to improve. And then there need to be processes for both recognizing um, and dealing with all of the things that can happen in production. And you've named two of the important ones already. One is, a, <clears throat> if you like, a generalized incident. Um, and the second one is a security incident, specifically, because that can be a live uh, incident causing um, ever greater harm to the environment, um, uh, you know, with human beings actually uh, actively attacking the system. So there can be a need to take um, um, a different level of action with that. But any production environment, really, uh, sorry, any production incident, obviously, needs immediate attention, needs a lot of focus, and we need to resolve it as quickly as we can. But going through some structured triage process is quite important so that actually the real impact um, on the organization that is running or owning the system is understood because some incidents can look quite dramatic, but actually because of the way that the system is being used, we've got a little bit more time to deal with them. We can deal with them in a more thoughtful manner. Others are genuine emergencies is that we absolutely have to deal with them right now. Um, I mean, a good example in, in the wholesale banking environments I used to work in is anything involving a client interface is a is really an absolute emergency um, because clients are demanding and expect them to be able to use uh, to use them. Um, there are some very important processes, you know, for example, internal reconciliation that we absolutely have to be able to do them, and they have to be demonstrated as robust to a regulator, and the business needs them to know that they can trust trust the values that they're seeing in their screens. But if that's not there for a couple of hours, <clears throat> actually, there are a number of workarounds that that can be used. So th there are different levels of response required for those. Um, um, and the last thing I think is that um, one often I think does get forgotten is um, learning from incidents. Um, I think this is a very, really important point uh, about, you know, improving the resilience of the organization is use any problem mistake incident as an opportunity to improve and for it not to happen again. Um, and um, that needs to be institutionalized, not just running through the steps. Most organizations do that, but um, producing real learning points out of them and having the commitment uh, and bravery sometimes to actually tell people what needs to change and to see through a change process that improves the organization in some way so that the learning is is uh, is beneficial and isn't just an academic exercise. So, you know, all of those need to be done. And I mean, one of the things we sometimes I think we dismiss, and I must admit, I sometimes dismiss it um, too, is um, that service management processes have been with us for a long time. And this is, you know, 
I best, best characterized probably by ITIL. And while I know that from a modern ops perspective, there's a lot of things about historical ITIL that maybe are not, you know, what we want to emulate today. It's worth being familiar with that world. One, because a lot of operations people have been trained in it since they were graduates. You know, so they're very, very familiar with the terminology and the approach. It's good to be able to understand what their what their, their historical background is. And two, although we mightn't want to go about things in a sort of ITIL version two way today, um, we might well want to um, see what's in ITIL to make sure that we learn from what's um, from all of that amassed experience, and maybe we apply. Um, we apply the approach and we apply the, the learning of all those decades in a different way, but but we do actually use that learning. Something Matt Skelton, he's one of the co-authors of Team Topologies, said to me many years ago, we've we've known Matt in Dava quite a long time, and he said, you know, when people come to me and say, we do DevOps, we have no time for ITIL. He said, it always kind of makes me smile because I feel I've, I inevitably go and look at them and find there's all these gaps in what they're doing operationally because they don't understand anything about ITIL. He said, it's not that um, the ideas behind ITIL are in, in themselves you know, wrong. It's that they're optimizing for a particular kind of environment. Many of the ideas are good. We need to re-optimize them for a different kind of environment than the one we're in today. And so um, I think I was covered quite a lot of ground there. But um, I mean, I think the key things are we need the processes to keep the system running stably and also to understand how it's running so we can spot trends and gain insights. We need the processes that allow us to recognize and respond to incidents in a, you know, rapid, structured, but calm manner. Um, uh, and um, um, lastly, we need um, a process we all really believe in and really follow so that um, uh, we learn from anything that goes wrong. And one, we don't do it again. And But two, you know, we improve the organization in some way um, as a result of a problem that we've suffered. Yeah. Yeah, learning from incidents, uh, I also think that this is uh, quite important. I mean, it's, for example, in one of my projects, uh, we, we have a lot of, let's say, old school uh, service and uh, service managers and IT mm -hmm. uh, people. Uh, but they, you know, they, they adapt to the new situation and they bring in their know-how. And, um, yeah, I'm, I have to say, I'm very uh, positive, uh, uh, I was positively surprised about all the gaps, uh, they were uh, filling, uh, we, um, so that was, that was uh, quite interesting. And, um, we, we also tried to learn from incidents, but that turned out to be, uh, yeah, not, not so easy with all the teams. Um, because what you said, you know, you, you can learn from incidents, but, but then you, you also have to, you have to do something about it. And mm, that, exactly. that happened uh, quite often that you think, Hey, uh, didn't that thingy occur two months ago? Exactly in the same way. <laughs> yes. Uh, do we have a post-mortem report? Yes. Did the post-mortem report say that, you know, here are the things we need to improve? Yes. Uh, did anyone do that? No. Uh, yes. <laughs> so, uh, yeah. So I think that the, it's all, it's all good that you, that you, uh, that you have those processes and, uh, and then you have the, the you have the, the learnings. But yeah, if, if a certain people do not believe that uh, it's important to, Uh, to implement those learnings, then yeah, it's it's kind of a waste of time. Exactly. So every, everyone needs to to agree that it's important to to implement the learnings. That's right. Yeah, and of course, I mean, this is people like product owners. You know, 
need to understand that there is a trade-off there. They will be able to do perhaps less functional delivery for a month or so because having had an incident, we, we're going to learn from it and improve some things. Yeah, on the other side, I mean, that's something I try to do. Uh, and then we, we come back to the requirements. If you have an agreed requirement, you know, if the, if the product owner thinks it's important to have, let's say, this amount of availability and due to your monitoring systems, you see that you are just, you know, you are far away from this requirement. Then obviously you have to to invest time, yeah, because you're not making the requirement. Or you just say, mm -hmm. okay, if you if if you don't want to implement uh, the, the learnings we had, um, then we we have to change the requirements because obviously uh, we we cannot make the requirements, and nobody's interested in in uh, giving them uh, uh, spend more time on on implementing them. Yes, this is the unfortunate reality, isn't it? <laughs> is that understanding you've got a problem is only part of the um, part of what's required, and actually knowing what to do in response to the problem and implementing it is is really the hard bit. Which you know, there's no way around that. Yeah, that's true. Um, yeah, learning from incidents. Um, maybe even before we have an incident. Um, so over the past years, uh, especially uh, people like Adrian Cockroft uh, popular, popularized uh, the term uh, chaos engineering or resilience engineering so that I run controlled experiments uh, in production to see how my, how my system behaves. I have to say, initially, I thought, ah, you know, this is maybe only for Netflix uh, kind of uh, companies. But uh, lately, I became a big fan of it, I have to say, um, because it also helps. I mean, it helps us to uh, to to understand our production environment uh, way better. Um, what is your opinion about, uh, let's say, those kind of controlled experiments? Uh, in production that for example i put i just give a few examples i i put additional synthetic load spikes of of load to my production environment just to see how it behaves i mean obviously i need to be um it, it's not doing like uh, it's not about creating uh, chaos or like doing random things I, I i i do believe that all my experiments work but you know not really know mm -hmm. um or that i you know the classic thing is that i kill machines because i know that my system still works or i believe that my system still works um so what what do you think about those um yeah about running controlled experiments in production i think they're a great idea um that's how you really build um confidence in both the technical but also the business teams that you have a resilient system i think the thing i worry about is that people sort of as sometimes people have a tendency to do they read the headlines and they suddenly jump in and start running all this stuff in production without thinking rather intentionally about how they do it and the and all the stuff i've read about chaos engineering from people like netflix um uh, and you know, a few of the books on the subject they're all very sensible they talk about the fact that you've got to make sure that they, um, the software you're using to uh, you know, cause the problems is itself very reliable. You've got to build confidence in it. You've got to make sure you set 
um, expectations and build the confidence of business stakeholders, you've got to do a lot of it in non-production environments before you get to the point of having the confidence to do it in the production environment. In the production environment, you do it step by step as you you know, you do small things that aren't critical, you learn from those, you get better at it to the point where you end up, you know, with these um, uh, these sort of little chaos robots running all over your system causing um, unplanned problems. Um, that definitely seems to be somewhere it would be good to get to. Um, I would be quite concerned if a team said that they were just going to start doing that. Um, it's It seems that, uh, and, and I've heard, you do hear some people talk in those terms about, hey, we should start, you know, Applying some uh, some of the Simeon Army to to our production system. Well, okay, <laughs> but why don't you start it on your laptop? Because <laughs> I'm not sure your software is that robust that even in that environment it will cause chaos. So um, it sounds like a, a really good end state. Uh, but like so many of these things, um, people. Are, I mean, um, I hear this with clients quite a bit. You know, Google do this. Yes, but Google's environment is not your environment, and they've been doing this a long time, and they didn't go from a standing start, nothing, to that in a single step. So view that you know view that as an inspiration or a vision let's take sensible risk control steps to get there yeah true true i i uh, i hear quite often if something goes really wrong in production uh, for example lately i think someone accidentally deleted uh, a production cluster in the US or something like that. And then everyone was like, oh yeah, this is this was a chaos experiment. No, no, it, it wasn't, you know. <laughs> that was just it, chaos. <laughs> it, it was just chaos. Yeah. If, if it would have been a chaos experiment, we would have tried that out on a non-production environment and there it worked. And <laughs> we... Exactly. <laughs> We were also aware of that and we had our, let's say, our monitoring in place to to, or, or, yeah, um, to see if uh, if really everything works as you, as, as you intended to do. And I, yeah, I think that's, that's a good point that um, yeah, it's not about randomly uh, creating chaos. It's really about uh, getting a better understanding of your system and only do things in production which you already have uh, verified in non-production and you are so sure about it and then you take tiny steps uh, toward, uh, toward that goal. That's it. It's about building confidence and the way to yeah, build confidence exactly. is not to deliberately have a huge production outage. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah I, I have to say I was always very against it. So I have a customer who says we need to do chaos engineering and I was always blocking that because, yeah, as I said, I, I thought this is only for, let's say, uh, Netflix kind of uh, people. And also some, let's say, consultancies around that topic. When I talked to them, it was really a bit uh, disappointing because they, yeah, they, they wanted to sell tools. Right. And, but, but then I, I, I have to, to make some uh, advertisement. I, uh, I attended a training from Russ Miles. Oh, yes. Uh, and, and he basically put me upside down on that. So he could really explain why you should do that and how. So I, yeah, and, and I bought his book and we implemented, you know, what, what he is proposing in the book, like this step-by-step -step process. And mm. uh, I, I found that quite uh, helpful. I think uh, Casey Rosenthal, Nora Jones are also good uh, resources to look at. Yeah, about building confidence. All those people, uh, I think, can definitely give pointers to, to um, getting to that vision, but doing it in a sensible way. Yeah. 
Yeah, I also have to say they are also selling tools, but uh, I think oh, they, they do do additional <laughs> a great job in uh, in uh, yeah telling how to do it uh, right. Yeah. Yeah, I find with with that one customer, I find it quite interesting that we we planned one of those experiments shortly before Christmas, and that was at the time where uh, where the, it was the first lockdown day in Germany, the COVID nineteen lockdown day, and mm -hmm. and then some some business people they kind of freaked out. And they said, are you crazy to do that experiment uh, now? And, you know, it's the first lockdown day. And, and we were like, hmm, I mean, we have this under control. We basically know exactly what's going on, but we have, yeah, what you said, the steady state. We know what the steady state is. We have the monitoring in place. We, we basically see if we even go slightly out of uh, the, let's say, the the steady state and we have a kill switch and everything and um, we have a lot of confidence in our system so it, it really felt good yeah to that's good to do to do that experiment and and say well you know it doesn't matter if it's christmas or something else we just you know we 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 basically know what's going to happen and if if the hypothesis is wrong then we know how to stop and get to back into get back into uh, normal operations within seconds. Mm, that's great. Okay, um, maybe one of the let's say um, final questions, or actually, it's my second uh, second to last question. How should we organize uh, operations? So there are different approaches. You know, Google, you mentioned Google. Google has a site reliability engineering team. Um, other companies prefer you build it, you run it. Mm -hmm. And then even other organizations still have a separated uh, development team and, and an operation team. What, what are the questions I need to ask to decide which approach I should use? That's a great question. Um, I think I'd point back actually to a book um, I mentioned very fleetingly earlier, the Team Topologies book. I think Matt Skelton and Manuel Pais do a good job of working through some of the some of the different trade-offs that the different teams have. Um, I'm not sure I've got a simple answer. I think um, there are um, there's a number of <clears throat> there's a number of organisational I suppose, forces or pressures that would cause you to build one or the other. I mean, definitely one I see repeatedly is um, the what I call the DevOps model, which is where you know you have a single team, they're accountable for everything, you have a mix of skills in the team, the team can do everything. That does require people who've got real, real operational skills to be happy working in that sort of environment. Um, and it's probably, you know, then Dava's head of managed services would point out to me, Actually, you know, those people come from a different background and often they actually do like to work in a different way. So if you've got a team like that, you, it might take you, uh, you know, maybe a pure DevOps model is not for you. Or even if that's the direction, maybe there need to be steps on the way. Um, Google's model obviously works very well for them. Um, and I think there are, to be fair, organizations who are running um, uh, organizations where there is quite a big split between dev and ops, but because they've got a culture that means that they all collaborate and they've got they've got sort of shared goals and directions, it's not specifically SRE, but um, they have a separate run it team, but actually they get good results anyway. So I don't think um, I have a 
I don't think I have a very simple set of principles to drive people towards one. But I, what I do think is that it's very important that you understand the people, the organizational pressures, the expectations, maybe the politics, dare I say it, in in the organization you're working in. And then you work out which models could possibly work and what their trade-offs are, rather than saying, you know, DevOps integrated, you build it, you run it, that's a good thing, let's just do that. I think that's not the way to select the operational model for your organization. Yeah. Yeah, I have uh, uh, under great pain. Um, I also realized that, I have to admit. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's good that, uh, you know, more and more um, uh, books or knowledge comes out. Um, discussing those approaches with the pros and cons. So uh, team topologies, I have to say, it's now also pretty much on the top of my reading uh, uh, stack. So I'm looking forward to that one. I also, there is a book uh, called Seeking SRE, which I find quite interesting. Um, so it's not, so there are various uh, people talking about site reliability engineering, how they do it, but uh, not the Google way. Yeah, because they work for Google and now they work for another company and then they failed with SRE at that company because it's just a different, it's just not Google. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, yeah, so I, I think there are, but it's also, you know, that it's not really clear to me what, when I read that it's, it's not a, it's not something you can say, ah, yeah, uh, now I, I exactly choose that model. It's, it's, yeah, what you said. You, you have to understand a lot of things about uh, your organization. Then you need to know all the different approaches and then you, um, yeah, you need to, to select one and adapt. Um, yeah, final question. Um, if, if, let's say I, I, I choose, um, uh, let's say an SRE approach or uh, you build it, you run it approach. So basically there is, let's say one team which is responsible for uh, operating and building the system. Yeah, I mean, also the classic SRE says you have site reliability engineers, but also developers uh, are part of the on-call support. Um, and I think that that usually works, or that's my, my experience. It it works great if if your services or your applications, whatever you, you you call it, if if you constantly work on them. You know, I I I work on my 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 service. I deploy it, and once it once it runs in production, in parallel, I I add more features, and that it works fine. But um, Often there are services which are stable, you know, they, uh, they don't change or only very rarely change. Mm-hmm. And maybe I even have this, let's say DevOps team, which uh, takes care of that. Um, but, but how do I effectively operate systems or services, which are basically stable? Should that be the, let's say the DevOps team, or should I hand that over to a, to a, let's say an old school operations team? That's a great question. And I mean, it's a related question is how do you operate packaged software where, um, you don't, you get into, you, you get occasional quite significant releases and rather than writing a lot of code, you're probably doing more configuration. Um, I think it's a good question. I don't think as an industry, we necessarily have the right answer to that yet. 
honestly, I think we're still struggling to find the right answer for systems that change all the time. My observation is, is that people with systems where they don't change very much, they tend to be much happier with the traditional service delivery model. Um, and I think that's probably because there's a lot more predictability. Um, they probably these probably aren't systems that un, that um, suffer very unpredictable workloads. They're probably not systems that, um, um, as you say, have to absorb a lot of change. They're probably not systems that are used in unusual ways or are at the core of the fastest moving business processes in the organisation. So, um, I mean, when it's run well, there's absolutely nothing wrong with high quality, you know, responsive service delivery. Um, and, you know, perhaps that's the right way to do it. The other way to do it is, um, I think what I think Darvo we'd call application management oriented um, work, where um, one of our professional disciplines is called application management. But in fact, they're, they're um, software engineers who have a range of skills from development through to operations. Um, so they're less specialist in development than our development engineering um, um discipline um but they still have development skills and they do everything from sustaining engineering on complex products right through to application uh, support type work um i think um where customers don't want so much a managed service um we uh, we still have a project team we've still got a cross functional team responsible for everything but they have a, a they just have a different mix of skills um the other thing is is that often a relatively small number of highly skilled people in an environment like that where the customer has invested in, you know, good underlying platforms, kept things up to date, invested in automation, they can actually run quite a lot of um, software with relatively few people because there are less unexpected surprises, there's less unpredictability. Um, the automation tends to be very reliable because automated tasks are, you know, just run the same way every time. So I think a lot of people would go towards traditional service delivery. But I think another way to look at it is cross-functional team model but changing the changing the um um a particular mix of skills you've got in the team to be more oriented towards automation and operation rather than um traditional development okay thank you you're very welcome um yeah what what, what would be your um you, the, the resources uh, every de developer and architect uh, needs to needs to know about. Obviously, we had the team topologies. We had uh, Michael Nygaard, Adrian Cockroft to follow, uh, all the chaos yep. engineering guys. Um, uh, there's a, anything there a good, else? Yeah, I, I could send you a list. There are a few other things, I'm sure. Um, yeah, for example, I came across a book, an O'Reilly book, Distributed Systems Observability by uh, Sindri Sidrahan, I think is um, um, the uh, author's name. Um, I thought that was a very good, accessible, um, balanced introduction to the whole area of observability, um, um, uh, which I, I thought was interesting. Um, there are, um, there are um, sort of um, classic texts on resilience, uh, outside software as well, not, not, not just software and resilience. Um, which are probably <clears throat> um, a little abstract for um, you know a lot of practicing software engineers, but definitely can contain um, good advice on um, th things to be aware of. And the yeah. other thing is, yeah, I think we I, talked I, a sorry, bit about. 
So, sorry that I jump in. Um, yep. I think uh, Adrian Cockcroft is kind of um, reading those materials and bring them to the and brings them to the to the software world. So you know oh, what what fantastic. what kind of resilience do what are the resilience practices, for example, in um, in hospitals or airlines, for example. And what can and that's we learn? The kind of thing from, Adrian from is that. great at doing. So, yeah, I'll be looking forward to seeing that. <laughs> Sorry, didn't want to. Uh, oh, I, no, of course, I wanted perfect. to interrupt, but uh, only short. That's yeah, a so. very good, in, very good in interjection. I only had one other point, which was <clears throat> uh, it's good to get a good book on retrospectives. Um, um, uh, I know um, Vonj Corey recently wrote a new one, and then I mean, there's an older one I've come across I thought was very good. Um, Esther Derby, I think, was the author, maybe with some other people. Uh, yeah, again, on yeah. uh, I think it was just called Agile Retrospectives. Books that you know lead you through the process, not only of working out what went wrong, but actually thinking about the organizational change required to do things better. Now, yeah, I haven't, I have the book from Esther Derby. I do have, but uh, yeah, uh, from from I know. I think it, it it lately came out like two months ago or something. It's very recent, probably. Yeah. Yeah, probably also really cool. All right. Actually, it is, I, I saw a presentation about that book, so that was actually quite nice. Okay, I will put all that in the show notes. Um, yeah, I have to thank you a lot. And um, yeah, once we once we approach the, the Ops 42 and Arc 42, <laughs> I come back to you. Yeah, sounds great. Well, thank all you right. for the interview. It was really... It was really uh, interesting, and I, I think I learned I learned at least as much as uh, everybody else did. Thank you. Cool. Thank you very much, and um, yeah, see you. See you next time. Yeah. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye.